Welcome to Infrastructure for a Better Future, a series where we have honest conversations about the infrastructure challenges we are facing and how we can build a better Aotearoa. In each episode, we talk to experts from here and overseas about what works when it comes to addressing these issues. I'm Nadine Dodge and I'm a senior economist at Te Waihanga. Today we're here to dig into the topic of our latest research note. It looks at corridor protection, designating or acquiring land for infrastructure in advance of when it's needed. This approach can make it easier and cheaper to build the infrastructure that we need. We're here today to learn a bit about how corridor protection works in practice at Kiwi Rail. We have with us David and Maria from Kiwi Rail. Can you each introduce yourself and tell us a bit about Kiwi Rail? Uh, my name's David Gordon. I'm uh, Kiwi Rail's Capital Planning and Asset Development Officer. It's a grand title, but basically what it means is I'm responsible for all the major capital programs within Kiwi Rail and thinking through the long-term development. Kiwi Rail's an interesting business in the sense that it's a state-owned enterprise, but we really have two arms. In rail parlance, we have above rail and below rail. Now, above rail is the businesses that operate on the tracks, and in our case includes the ferries and our property business. That business is required to be self-sustaining. And so what that means in practice for rail in New Zealand, we don't have to pay a dividend, but we do have to earn enough profit to replace our capital. So we're not going to the shareholder for money. The below rail business is quite different. It is much closer in many respects to the state highway business than it is to the above rail business. Our role is to ensure that we provide a safe platform or infrastructure on which the above rail business can operate. We are funded through track access charges from users to a certain extent, but predominantly uh, with changes to the Land Transport Management Act. We are funded via the National Land Transport Fund, which itself receives a top up from the Crown Consolidated Fund uh, for rail infrastructure. And in that business, we should be able to take a much longer perspective and we, and we should be in the business of protecting corridors. I'm Maria Bettestad. I've been with Kiru Rail um, just over two years and come from a background of working in law firms and advising on and leading major infrastructure projects, as well as looking at strategy and policy in relation to the delivery and funding of infrastructure projects. So I understand that historically, New Zealand used to do a lot more corridor protection than it does now. Can you tell us a bit about how this has played out for rail? Look, it's very interesting because I'm going to use a case, two case studies here. And the, the first long-term, let's call it long-term success, is the South Down Avondale Corridor. Now, in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, my predecessors <coughs> recognised that it's very difficult to get a train from uh, Westfield to, north, to going to Northland if you have to go via Newmarket because uh, you go down and up very steep grades and you go through the urban, urban environment. So they set aside, they acquired and set aside a corridor between Southdown and Avondale for future rail. Now at one stage it was going to be for a port at Te Atatu, if you can believe it, uh, but it was always there on the basis that at some point the rail would take what is the shortcut and a much more uh, easy grade. Now, none of that has actually played out in reality. I mean, rail went through a massive decline probably from the early 60s, 60s onwards. 
So the corridor that exists has never been used to date to the intent that our, our predecessors had. But it has been used for urban development and prospectively will still be used for rail. So what we had is a lot of people with a lot of foresight putting land aside in the uh, early 2000s, that land was exchanged in part with uh, what was then Transit New Zealand, now Wakakatahi, to help form the contiguous corridor that makes up State Highway 20. Uh, we're working now with the Auckland Light Rail team to find a way for them to use parts of the corridor for that development, whilst we're hanging on to sufficient land for two tracks still running from Northland, uh, from Avondale to Southdown. Now the, the importance of this line has been uh, really under-recognised for a number of years. But now that you have a discussion that says, well, Auckland Port should close and Auckland should be served from the north and the south, respectively, Tauranga and Northport, then how do you get the goods through Auckland? And the only way you can achieve that is by running from uh, south down through to Avondale, then north, or Avondale south down heading south, which also opens up the opportunity for the whole centre of Auckland to be passenger-only rail with much greater intensity. So it's an example, I think, of foresight, putting it aside for one purpose, but by putting it aside as a corridor. And the people couldn't have envisaged light rail. They certainly couldn't, couldn't have envisaged State Highway 20, but it served the Auckland public incredibly well and will continue to do so. Thanks so much. That's a really interesting story, and I think it really shows how previous generations thought not only for their current time, but for future generations. Now, I understand that at the moment, it's a lot more challenging to do corridor protection than it was in the past. Um, can you tell us a bit about how corridor protection is playing out today for rail? Well, it's very, it's, it is quite different. Uh, we've known for about 20 years, uh, once the government put its mind to reinvest in Metro Rail in Auckland, that you need more than two mains heading north and south between Westfield and Pukekohe. Ultimately, you need four. Now, when that ultimately is, no one, no one really knows. But we have a situation at the present moment where we are electrifying two mains. Uh, we are ensuring that is designed in a way that allows for four. But until you actually have a capital project, there is no way that you can accumulate the land in order to put it, to put it aside. So what we've got is a problem of knowledge of something for 20 years, but the actual inability to do anything about it until you you're much closer to the project itself. And if I take the area from uh, Papakura to Pukekohe, which is about half the length, 19 kilometres, I would be buying in a rural market right now. If by the time I have a project, I may well be buying in an urban and developed environment, and, more, and even more damagingly so, I may be buying where people have actually built up right close to the railway. And there isn't the equivalent means of just taking that very long-term view and accumulating over 20 to 30 years to build up a corridor so when you're ready, you can actually move on it. So it sounds like a very challenging situation that we're dealing with right now. Why do you think that that's the case? Uh, what do you see as the main barriers to doing more corridor protection and what could we even do to make this easier? 
I think there's a couple of issues there. As Dave indicated, for the funding process to even begin it, you need to have a capital project. And the business case process itself has various stages that require a lot of certainty. And so with a limited funding pool, um, often the strategy is to go for the easy wins, you know, the first part of the project, not the whole 20 or 30 year plan, which means that you're not you know, you might want to look ahead and acquire land beyond that, what you'll need in the next five to 10 years, but you just don't have the funding available. And the processes are so difficult in terms of the certainty you need to show for your project to get the funding. It means that um, the, th the process is delayed and it just becomes more complex. The other part of it is for us to acquire land, we're a requiring authority, we can use the Public Works Act, but that process is quite dated and cumbersome. It's been around for years, it's never really been streamlined, and it's really quite difficult. And I appreciate that part of the reason it's difficult is because people, you know, organisations should not, it shouldn't be easy for them to acquire other people's land. But the thing is, the way that it's set up is, even if we did look ahead and we had a little bit of money available and thought actually in this corridor, if someone's selling, perhaps we should buy it at a you know reasonable price to think forward. If later on we no longer needed that land, even if it was a willing seller, willing buyer sale, we would be required under the Public Works Act to offer that back to the original owner which creates its own complications. And then if you add into that, so we've got funding, we've got the public works that process, and then you've got consenting because you need to have a project. And so it kind of works in parallel this, you know, wanting to acquire the land with what is your project. And if you're looking way ahead, you may not have been able to really articulate and done the work to establish what your project is. Because as part of the consenting, they want to know how long are you going to um, be before you start building and when you build it, how long will it take, how long will the temporary areas be occupied for construction and those levels of detail if you're looking for a really long term project for root protection you just might not have that yet. To make it clear how big of a problem it is or how challenging it is to acquire land in advance it sounds like you have to have thought about what you're going to use the land for, be quite certain about what project you're going to do be quite certain about where that project is going to go and the environmental impacts of the problem. Is that kind of all the things that you need to have in a row right now or is there other things as well? Effectively, it's uh, that's what you need for a consenting process and that's what you need to demonstrate when you're going through um, a, the Public Works Act land acquisition process as well. So, you know, effectively, they're both in parallel. You can't do one separate from the other. And I guess what we were talking about earlier is long-term corridor protection. You just don't have all of that detail. And so it's very hard to do because you haven't got the detail of what the actual project is and how it will land. Look, further to Maria's comments, I wonder if it's worth just looking at what happened in South Down Avondale, because it's actually been there for 60 plus years. So the, it has actually developed as a residential suburb. We have earned good income as, uh, from housing on there. And in other parts, as you get move further northwest, it's got uh, a very nice piece of parkland, stream and all the rest running through it, and it's a nice green belt. You know, paradoxically, when we, I think when we finally come along and say we want a railway, people will be saying, why are you disturbing our lovely little greenway that we've, we've had for there for years and ditto the housing? So look, I don't think it causes I don't think it causes planning blight at all. And similarly, if you look at the third and fourth main, what's better 
giving people certainty of a certain piece of corridor is going to be there. So when they buy, it's going to, they know it's going to be there. Or pretending that somehow it's never going to happen and uh, then coming along and putting a corridor right up against their backyard. To me, I think you owe it to the future generations to give that certainty that what's happening in their backyard is indeed what they're buying into. The thing that I found in my research note that really surprised me was that it's potentially stopping us from getting the infrastructure that we need. So I looked at some scenarios, one was a school and one was a rail extension where at the point in time where there's sort of a 50-50 chance that the project's going to go ahead, say 10, 20 years in advance, if you acquire the land then, then the project always goes ahead in the 10, 20 years in the future when it ultimately stacks up. But in the cases where you wait and see until the business case is ready, actually it was only one out of 10 cases where the school or the rail extension was able to be built, which quite, it, it surprised me that it was really that intense of a effect of not planning in advance. It's not just that things are more expensive, it's also that certain projects are just never possible. And I guess that um, there's, a, there's a balance there, right? And actually properly planning it, getting land ahead, you know, let, giving the community a big red flag of what's coming so they know, so there are no surprises because there's nothing worse for major projects and no bigger objection than people saying, we had no idea, no one told us, we didn't think of this. When actually the reality is these processes take a long time. Someone was thinking about it for a long time, but it wasn't in the public domain because they didn't have the money or, you know, it wasn't a priority. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of different elements working together to make it very complicated and very difficult to do. Now, on the other side, I understand that some people say that it should be that way, that if we made it easier to protect corridors, that would be problematic. They say that it would cause planning blight. Essentially, if we tied up land in advance, it would reduce property values and reduce the attractiveness of communities basically having land lying around doing nothing. How would you respond to that criticism? I think there's two parts to that. I think historically, um, public organisations, when they've acquired land for future projects, 10, 20 years, they, they've acquired the land and, you know, people have seen um, large blocks overgrown, not maintained, perhaps not safe with um, not being looked after. But I think um, with the pr current price of land prices in New Zealand, when you are going to make the very careful strategic decision to acquire land, it's going to be for a purpose. Heavy Rail is an SOE, so we have a requirement to turn a profit and be a responsible public citizen and operator. And that means if we acquire a large tract of land that perhaps we may not develop for five to 10 years, we're going to look at how best to make sure that land is looked after, potentially has a return, what uses can occur on it, perhaps can the existing, you know, if it's residential housing, the people can stay there, or if they don't want to, it can be rented for a period and part of the accommodation pool. If it's industrial, perhaps light industrial activities and temporary works can take place, storage, some sort of depot that can easily be removed down the track without too many permanent structures when the land is required. So, and I think as part of that, we don't want it to be unattractive. You want it to be safe. If it's in the middle of a community, you know, it could become a temporary landscaped area or a park or, or something that it could have a use and a role in that community till it is needed. And I think these days the approach is, 
if you're going to acquire land and you don't need it for a long time is to look at, well, what is the return? It's never going to be the same return, but to make a strategic decision and be able to weigh out the options for what you would do with that land as a responsible landowner. So as Maria said, just having a corridor in existence will help define the, uh, the urban form and something will come to be built on it because you, the thing of value is the corridor in the first instance, not the intended purpose, because that intended purpose can change. Yeah, I look at Wellington with its town belt that was reserved back in 1840, and it's been used for so many purposes since then that people in 1840 could have never imagined. It was a fever hospital during the flu pandemic, and it's had schools, and it's had golf courses, and it's had transport projects. It's had so many different things that I'm sure people uh, at that time could have never imagined would be needed, but it, it allows that flexibility of use once you just like have the land there to use. And I think it also defines the urban form very early on and things build around it. It's, so it, it, it becomes a part of the urban fabric very early on. Uh, I think much, much better than trying to impose a corridor later. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, David and Maria. While we may not know exactly what the future holds, your examples suggest that our current wait-and-see approach isn't ideal. It means that we're missing out on getting the infrastructure that we need, where and when we need it. And while the future is uncertain, done well, corridor protection can have big benefits for today and tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Find out more about the work Te Waihanga is doing to transform infrastructure in Aotearoa at tewaihanga.govt.nz.